0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Greetings, fellow time travellers. As always, it's great to have you with me for another stop on our journey through time together. I suppose this uh, podcast series is ambitious and it's a journey like no other, for sure. A journey through time. The idea is to tell the history of the world in 100 episodes. I think of them as 100 moments in time. And the idea, I'll be quite uh, frank, is not to be comprehensive. Uh, I'm not sure you'd be able to do that even in a thousand or ten thousand moments or episodes. But it's my story, it's my understanding of how we got here from an an almost notional moment in time about five thousand years ago. It's how I seek to make a dot-to-dot map out of important people, places and events across history. Uh, and the whole of it helps me make sense of the world and the part that homo sapiens have played in shaping it but it's unashamedly personal and by definition i'm almost inviting but encouraging everyone else to think of the hundred moments or the hundred episodes or the hundred people that you think would best or better tell the story of the world Uh, this week this episode this moment is it's 1547 we're in russia Uh, But before I get started, I just want to say thanks to everyone who's joined me on this journey. It would be lonely without you, to put it mildly. Uh, If you want to show your support for this podcast series on a practical level, simply sign up to my neiloliverpatreon.com site. It will cost you a bit of cash, uh, monthly or annually, uh, but you give your support and you become part of a family and you get access to a weekly question and answer session where you ask me the questions and I respond Um, There's competitions with prizes. Okay, that's enough of the backstory and and the advertising. It's now time to get back to the history of the world. Strap yourselves into the time machine, people, as we set off on the next stop in my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. A place that seems less like a country and more like a state of mind spanning two continents and 11 time zones. The biggest country in the world, twice the size of either China or the United States of America. In the 16th century, Ivan the Terrible expanded its territory exponentially, stamping his authority across vast lands and setting a precedent for how to rule Russia, exerting control with the gravitational pull of nothing less than a black hole. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In last week's episode, as gold and silver glittered before our eyes, we were plunged into a hell on earth. Where are we this week? Hello again Paul. Well today our travels through time take us to meet one of those big names of history. You know the sort. You know, your George Washington's and your Genghis Khan's and Florence Nightingale's and Napoleon Bonaparte's, Gandhi. Those huge figures whose names everyone knows, even if they couldn't perhaps tell you much more than a paragraph or even a line about what that person did. Well, in this episode we're meeting another towering historical figure, Ivan the Terrible. The year is 1547 and he's being named Tsar of all Rus the vast, vast empire which has had and continues to have such a powerful impact on the world. Well, we're in a place that's, I suppose, quite prominent in a lot of people's thinking. We're in Russia. And for all sorts of reasons, for the last year or so, people have had lots of reasons to think about Russia and things Russian. Uh, But this is in the MO of this podcast series. We're considering the past and uh, it's it's fascinating to look back. Uh, into the backstory of a place that's come into the public eye for whatever reason. Because there, there are invariably echoes and resonances and things that make you think, ah, oh, right, I get you, <laughs> which I always find very pleasing. Russia is amazing. I've been there once. I I, I did some time filming based around St. Petersburg, actually, and then out into the, away from the city, which was impressive, and then out into the hinterland, which was revelatory. Uh, in in as much as it it was very poor. The infrastructure, the pavements, and the streets, and the the houses. and There was a a lot of obvious poverty once you got out into the more rural area within a day or two's travel of St Petersburg, which I think when I was going out there, I didn't really know what to expect of Russia because it was my first time. This was, I'm I'm only talking about maybe, well, between 10 and 15 years ago, it was while we were making a, a documentary series about the Vikings, and uh because russia as 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 listeners to the love letter to the world will know was founded by Swedish Vikings and Russia's just as it has been for a few hundred years and as it still is today it's extraordinary down in no small part to the sheer vastness when you look at it on a Mercator projection the kind of big world map that we all had in classrooms at school uh, I don't know but I don't really think you get the proper sense of the scale of Russia somehow It feels like more than a country It, it even feels like a continent It certainly, and it, well, it is the biggest country in the world in terms of land mass It's twice the size of China Twice the size of the USA So just in sheer geographical footprint it's, it's hard to take in St. Petersburg is in the west into... Europe as, as we think of Europe. If you travel from St. Petersburg to the far east the far eastern pacific extreme of Russia, you cross 11 time zones. Right, so if you're on a train from St. Petersburg to the pacific coast, you change your watch <laughs> 11 times as you travel from west to east. And yet for all that for all its giganticness it's home to just about 145 million people that's a lot of people but when you consider that the European Union is home to 450 million people or or the United States of America is you know 300 and and odd million people the fact that Russia is so vast and yet so relatively sparsely populated is probably another surprise for a lot of people much of Russia, the landmass, is, say, Siberia, right up into the Arctic. So you have these, you might call them wastes, actually, wastelands, natural wastelands. Well, they're alive to, the, to those creatures that have evolved to, to survive there, but for human life, it's pretty inhospitable. You get into places in Russia, you know, where you get down to the lowest recorded temperatures in which people live, you know, you get to places where it can be minus 50 <laughs> in the wintertime and they keep their milk in cubes in the back garden because it never, you know, it never melts into a liquid. And yet, and this is significant, especially in the modern, in this moment through which we're living, Siberia is also very rich in mineral wealth. Yeah. You know, so natural gas to name but one. And obviously in the context of the war, with Ukraine, that was really the war with with NATO in the West. Uh, Russia has is weathering it well, in no small part because it's got so much of the stuff that the rest of the world wants in ways that just wouldn't be possible otherwise. You know, it would have been sort of strangled into submission, I would have I would have supposed had it not been for the fact that it's got so much stuff that the rest of the world wants. <laughs> Philosophically, I think you could say that being Russian is probably more of a state of mind. Maybe that's true of maybe being maybe being well being British is a state of mind, isn't it? Or being a citizen of the USA—that's a state of mind. But Russia, being so vast, and it, it it takes in so many you know European people and Asian people represented on, in the Russian landmass, languages, creeds, and colours. It's such a melting pot of Of humanity, you'd have to say that if they are united by anything, it's a state of mind. Winston Churchill, I'm aware of the fact that I grew up knowing exactly who Winston Churchill was, and I was familiar with a lot of the things that Winston Churchill had said, especially around the time of the Second World War. He spoke on a radio interview, Old Winnie, on the 1st of October 1939, and he said, 1939, so outbreak of the Second World War, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia And here's the famous bit. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. And people have been sort of half-quoting that, misquoting that, misapplying it ever since. But what was missing then and is certainly absent from most people's consciousnesses now is the second half that wasn't really remembered at the time and, and has certainly been gone since. But the other half of that line is that he said, in relation to understanding that enigma, he says, but perhaps there is a key the key is Russian national interest. Okay, so he didn't just leave it hanging. He didn't just say that Russia was an enigma, not to be understood. He suggested even then, in that moment, that you can probably start to unpick what's going on in Russia because they're motivated by national interest. But then, isn't every nation? So Russian national self-interest has been the lifeblood, the beating heart, the pulse of the place for the longest time. Because having become so large, the challenge was to keep it together. It's like herding cats, it's like pushing water uphill. Because you've got all these different peoples, as I've already mentioned, all these different understandings of the cosmos, all these different l- landscapes and climates. And in order to keep it together, the only way to keep it together has been to establish and to maintain a colossally powerful center of gravity right in the middle. That like a black hole that's pulling that's pulling everything towards it. That's the only way that it's been possible to keep Russia as Russia. The roots, the, the historical roots of Russia go back to the Rus of Kiev. And the Rus. Was a word that was applied to the Swedish Vikings by the people amongst whom they arrived. So those people, those Swedish Vikings, didn't call themselves Rus. That was a, a nickname that was applied to them, and it probably means meant something like the men who row. You know, because they would hear they would hear the sound of the slapping of the oars of the longships along the river. Maybe before they saw them, and they would think, Oh, here they come, the Rus, the men who row. Uh, and they made this enormous impact. And they, the the first among them really was Rurik, who was. You know, I was a, a Swede, a Swedish Viking. He established himself in the place that we know as Kiev in Ukraine. You know, who hasn't heard, hasn't had the name Kiev running around in their heads for, you know, over a year now. That place was established by Swedish Vikings on the make. <laughs> and Rurik was the first of them. Uh, I've mentioned before in the Love Letter to the World that the Vikings, they kind of auditioned for a religion. They were pagan polytheistic, worshipping all sorts and legend has it that they decided to get themselves one of those monotheisms that they had been encountering, which is to say will we be Jewish, will we be Muslim, or will we be Christian? And they had a look at them all and they, to cut a long story short they were most impressed by the Christianity that they found in the Church of St. Sophia in Constantinople and what would become Russia, Rus the men who ruled, that being the root of Russia, they opted for a version of Christianity, the Eastern Orthodox version of Christianity that they encountered in Constantinople. The point of all that being that Russia started small. Given what it became, what it is, that mighty oak tree grew from a very small acorn in the form of the Kievan Rus. What year was that? It's in the latter part of the 10th century, so the late 900s. Uh, The the ruler in question was Vladimir. There's another connection to the modern era. It's a name that that resonates through the Russian story. So it's around the turn of the 11th century that uh, the Swedish Vikings, in their tiny little fledgling country, really decide to acquire for themselves a unifying, monotheistic faith, and they pick the Christianity of Constantinople. And, and the, point, the point is that Russia was always small and therefore always vulnerable to invasion from all sides. They're landlocked. They've got access to the outside world and the sea via rivers, but they're a landlocked presence. And that sense of, of having enemies everywhere, all around them, stayed with them. It's in the DNA. It's always been in the DNA of, of the Russian state. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, they were always being attacked But by any and all, in the 13th century, which is to say the 1200s, they came under the attention, like so many other people did, of the Mongol forces, Genghis Khan and so on. And so feeling vulnerable in Kiev, they moved and established a new capital for themselves at Moscow. Right, so it's from that point, so from the 1200s, there's a Moscow that matters and the place that we know as Russia comes to know itself for a while as the Grand Principality of Muscovy, which is from Moscow. And they're still vulnerable. It's on them all the time. They've kind of got hunched shoulders waiting for the next aggression. So, come 1440, specifically the 22nd of January, 1440, a child is born unto the Russian royal house. He's Ivan Vasilyevich. He is the Grand Prince of Moscow, and grand prince of all the Rus. And he ascends to his father's throne in 1462. Okay, so he's 22 years old when he comes to the throne. Uh, he's married to Sophia Palaiologina. there's a mouthful, who was the sister of Constantine Eleventh, who was the last emperor of Constantinople, the same who had been last seen somewhere above the gates of Santa Sophia when he took the sword from a dying or dead defender and leapt out into the horde of the Seljuk Turks outside the walls of Theodosius. And he was never seen again, although a head that was supposed to be his head was paraded before the Sultan. So Ivan Vasilievich is the Grand Prince of Moscow and Grand Prince of Ulrus, and he's married to the surviving sister, Sofia Palailogina, sister of Constantine XI, the last emperor. So he's quite venerable. Uh, and from that union, from the union of the house of Palaiologus and uh, Vasilievich, we get the the double-headed eagle that's familiar as the Russian coat of arms. That manifestation is honoring that splicing of these two important families. Now Ivan Vasilievich came to be known as Ivan the Great, who you will have heard of, I'm sure, and under his rule Uh, He started the growth, the big growth. Under his rule, Russia tripled in size. So that's an impressive accomplishment during the reign of a single person. He had, well, aspirations, delusions of grandeur, whatever way you want to see it. He saw his place as successor to the Roman Empire. And he saw Moscow as the new Rome. You know, so he had grand aspirations, great aspirations, hence Ivan the Great. He was the first to call himself Tsar. It's a corruption of, or or an alternative pronunciation of Caesar, from the title of the Roman emperor. Caesar becomes, in the Russian language, Tsar. And Sofia, his wife, is the Tsarina. The moment, though, the moment that matters from my telling of the story of the world is the naming of his grandson who was Ivan after grandpa and was named as the first Tsar of all Rus he was the first to bear that title this was in 1547 when this Ivan was 16 years old this Ivan comes to be known as Ivan the Terrible and obviously we think terrible and I don't need to explain to you what that word means to us but interestingly it's it's a translation into english of a russian word grozny which really says more about being powerful than it does about being evil so as far as the the honorific went or the nickname went he was really being called another variation on ivan the great ivan the terrible probably means just uh, even greater than ivan the great having said that having said that ivan the terrible could be evil as well. In the latter part of his reign, which was long, he became increasingly paranoid. That sense of threat everywhere that was Russian manifest itself in his personality. He was almost being the embodiment of what Russia had always been, which was to say, sensing threat everywhere. And in 1570, he sensed treason, uh, dissent, whatever, in the city of Novgorod. And he dispatched his soldiers, and the soldiers under his orders tortured and murdered tens of thousands of men, women, and children. This was the massacre of Novgorod, uh, and it was just a ma- it was a manifestation of his paranoid state of mind and his, I suppose, l- the latent cruelty that was in his personality that came to the surface as his as his reign drew to a close. But having said that, it was under his reign, during his reign, that the great growth of Russia was achieved. He spread from Moscow, if you like, he spread east into the Ural Mountains, he spread the territory south to the Caspian and the Black Seas, he reached north into the Arctic. He didn't complete the swallowing of Siberia, but within a hundred years of Ivan the Terrible, Russia had absorbed all of what we know as Siberia and in addition it would taken the boundary of Russia all the way to the sea all the way to the Pacific. Okay so Russia under Ivan the Terrible becomes the vastness that we think about. His reign paved the way for Peter the Great and for Catherine the Great and by the end of World War Two, so by 1945, Russia Spread or or took in a a swatch of territory from Berlin in the west to the Pacific Ocean in the east and from the Arctic in the north all the way to Afghanistan in the south. And what was always required for anyone seeking to be the Tsar or the president of Russia was centralized control, ruthless centralized control. You had to create and maintain the gravitational hold of a a black hole to to keep the whole thing from doing what it would otherwise do, which was spin off and become all of these separate entities. So a sequence of events really set and trained by Ivan the Great and then Ivan the Terrible culminated at, at the end of the Cold War The Cold War, which which took the place of the hot war between 1939 and 1945, from 1945 until 1989, there was a Cold War, which was that East and West were at each other's throats, but without necessarily the tanks rolling and the bullets flying. The Iron Curtain fell, 1989, as we know, and it, it saw, you would be justified in saying, a lessening of the Russian dominance in that part of the world, but the Russian state of mind, prevailed and possibly always will and you might describe the Russian state of mind as uh, the desire for a strong man as the embodiment of that gravitational centre and where you have a strong man at the centre of Russia there is also a Russian tendency to submit to that strong man it's a symbiotic relationship because as has always been the case there are there's, tends to be in any given situation, a majority who want order, if the alternative to order is what they would see as chaos and dissolution of the greater entity. It's not just a Russian state of mind. We see it all around us now. You know, people were prepared to put up with the restrictions and the regulations that came out in the name of COVID. They were prepared to go to their homes and stay there for 24 hours a day for weeks and months on end because it represented to the mass of the population order when the propaganda from the state was telling them that without that order there might be chaos. Uh, So it's that which worked so well in Russia has worked elsewhere. At the same time that Churchill was, was referencing and describing Russia as an enigma, he also quoted a British liberal, John Bright, John Bright had said, in the context of the American Civil War, at last, after the smoke of the battlefield has cleared away, the horrid shape which had cast its shadow over the whole continent had vanished and was gone forever. That was in reference to the threat to the Union of the United States of America. But ever since the time of Ivan the Terrible, the shadow that is cast across Russia, for good or ill, by strong men has never gone away. Voices crying in the wilderness, asking questions about what it means to be human. A conference affecting the lives of millions of people is underway. Arguments rise up in favour of slavery, claiming some men are meant to rule others, but there are plenty that know it's wrong and raise their voices against it railing against the abuse of power and seeking protection for the vulnerable next time in my love letter to the world to help support this podcast and get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site I'd love to see you there check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter My YouTube channel is simply called The Neil Oliver Channel and to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Catnip Inc. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube, producer is Oscar, CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been a Catnip Inc. Podcasts production.